I don't know how to describe it other than like like a demon type of sound. But it's silhouetted, hulking, every bit of five and a half feet wide, 13 to 14 foot tall, pitch black. The one thing that ran through my mind when I had this encounter was I don't have a big enough gun. Your host, two-time witness and field researcher for more than 40 years, William Jevning. Welcome to Creek Devil. Hello, everyone. We're doing a new piece called Campfire Talk, and it's pretty much anybody who wants to join in the conversation. It's just a casual discussion. Uh, Forrest and Chuck and myself are here today where we kind of talk about whatever we want to talk about. We come up with this because... After oftentimes after we record uh, a witness, after the recording is done, we'll sit around and we'll talk about lots of things, and we always say, "Oh, geez, that, we should have recorded all that." <laughs> so that's kind of where we are. In fact, just now, uh, I had to start the recording before we kept going because we were talking about kind of an interesting topic, and that was, um, you know, Sasquatch sense of smell, and. And we're many people, if you look in, in the stories out there, there are a number of them out there, historical and current, where people have seen the creatures sniffing the air, whether they uh, knew a person was there or not. And um, I was mentioning to Forrest and Chuck that uh, during my uh, time at Washington State University, I, I majored in psychology there, and, and it was mostly, I took mostly neurobiology classes. And, and, they would go into very minute detail in these different areas. And one of them, I remember when they were talking about human sense of smell, and, and they always compared, people always compared dogs to human, how much better dogs are than humans. Well, yes, they can pick up very minute particles. Humans actually can too. Uh, it just might take a few more than it does for the dog to identify a scent. Well, the dog won't really identify the scent. They can only identify a small number of scents. But they'll pick something up that's, you know, very small and very few particles and be able to, you know, go after whatever it is, say, you know, with a tracking dog. Uh, whereas a human can identify uh, 50,000 or more different scents. They can distinguish. We can distinguish between all those different scents out there. So it's not really a comparison of one that's better than the other. One can do certain things the other ones can't and vice versa. But... Um, so the Sasquatch, you know, they, they sniff the air for things and especially where humans are concerned because, uh, when I was in the military, after you'd go out and get, uh, kind of oriented to your mission, let's say at night, you know, doing a patrol, if you're out for a while, you, your senses become heightened. You can see better, you hear better, you can smell better. So what do you, what do you think, Forrest? Uh, no, I, I totally agree with you. And there are actually some uh, primitive tribes that uh, you will actually see them sniffing the air, too. But I think that's because they have relied upon that uh, actual function <clears throat> for so long. Uh, we have lost a lot of that ability only because we don't use it. It's, it goes back to the old thing that, you know, you lose it. If you don't use it, you lose it. So um, it's... Uh, I think that that is a, has a lot to do with it. I mean, people in the modern society don't uh, uh, recognize scents. I mean, yeah, you can smell a perfume and think, oh, grandmother used to wear that, and then you bring back memories and mm -hmm. stuff like that to you. But um, you're not going to have people standing out there sniffing the air, you know, unless the guy next door is barbecuing or something. But, uh, um, you know, you know what I'm saying. They're not uh, sniffing the air to see if they uh, – if there's a mountain lion about around right. or if there's a bear or a bear around, of course, sometimes you can smell bears a long way off before they get there. But, um, um, you know, that the olfactory system, uh, olfactory system and primates is not as well developed as it is in other animals. Like, you know, we're talking about the dog and even cats. Uh, mm -hmm. Cats actually have a higher a, a better ability uh, for scent tracking than even dogs do. But uh, irregardless, um, I don't suppose they're going to start tracking criminals with uh, kitty cats. But uh, um, <laughs> <laughs> When you could get them to move, right? Yeah. <laughs> They'll be looking at you, no. <laughs> We're not pack animals. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm alpha. You human. No, you follow me. Mm -hmm. uh, but... <laughs> 
that's the cat's mentality. But anyway, um, primates, I've never seen this uh, particularly in any other kind of primate. Now, granted, you'll see primates come up and sniff, uh, uh, you know, the genitals or the, the most, gen- they're, what they're sniffing is actually uh, primates have a scent gland underneath the tail or right at the, the above the, the buttock reach, uh, the butthole region. I'm sorry to have to say that, but that's what it is, the anus. <laughs> and um, there's a, a gland right there. So you'll see primates come up and sniff each other there. And um, because each each individual primate has a distinctive scent. And um, But uh, I've never seen any other primate just stick their nose in the air and start sniffing. So that's not to say that they don't do it. I've just never seen it. I, I never thought much about it until there was the Larry Batson story, you know, and he, he got from Bob Titmus, or apparently Bob Titmus told him this account on the phone, and and Larry wrote it down. But, um, you know, for listeners who haven't heard this, it's a pretty interesting story, actually. Uh, Titmus was in the Bluff Creek area several years before Patterson got the film in the same, actually, uh, close proximity to where Patterson got the film. And he was wandering back in that area, apparently decided it was too late. Uh, it was getting dark, and it was too late for him to try to get out without injuring himself, you know, trying to go through the brush at night. So he decided to hunker <laughs> down for the night, and he and he laid down in a depression and covered himself up with leaves and things that were on the ground uh, for warmth. And he covered himself all, all over except for his face. And sometime during the night, he estimated around 1 a.m., uh, hear her this crashing sound and apparently you know he realized it was one of these creatures and it got up fairly close to where he was and he could hear it sniffing the air and then it apparently knew he was there but couldn't find him uh, which kind of, to me kind of demonstrates that you know they don't have perfect night vision they can navigate fairly well at night but not perfect night vision um, and apparently it, it trashed here he said the next morning after the creature left he got up and it looked like a a train had gone through the timber uh and then apparently by the tracks after patterson got the film they were able to determine that it was the same creature so it i just thought same, that was it was the same female wasn't it it was the same female yeah so it just kind of makes me and i read a couple other accounts where people had, had commented on this about seeing the creature sniffing the air um and i suppose you know at some time back, our ancestors probably had similar things. I mean, I, and from my point of view, I would say uh, fire would be the big one because, you know, in the wild, you know, before humans were civilized, uh, when people had fire, I suppose if you were out and, and smelled fire, you would instantly think, oh, there's other people nearby, and you'd be cautious about that. Well, well, that that kind of goes in uh, hand in hand when, when, when this has happened to us several times having a campfire out in the woods and we would all be sitting around the campfire and within a certain period of time we started having activity all around us and in fact we had one actually run behind a couple of the guys that were sitting at the campfire we were all sitting around the campfire and there was two of us that saw it and the two of the guys were talking to one another and we were kind of listening. We, the rest of us were just listening to the conversation. And all of a sudden we see a juvenile come running behind those two guys. And I, I think the smoke, I mean, that's a pretty good telling sign that, you know, if they're, they're in the area, uh, the curiosity will get them and they will, they'll, they'll smell the smoke and come right to you. Yeah, I've experienced the same thing. It's interesting, especially in areas where, let's say, it's not normally prone to wildfires. Um, you know, if it's wetter and more green, uh, that would be something that would stick out more, you know, mm-hmm. to any, anything in the area. Uh, you know, an example is, you know, we of course, we were teenagers. We had that happen a couple of times. And then years later, um, as adults, we were in uh, Raymond, Washington, and uh, on a tip from locals that there was some stuff going on out there so we decided to go out and we just picked a spot to set up camp and we had our vehicles we actually put our vehicles in a circle around us you know with the bumpers too close together so nothing could just get in there 
and we were sitting around the fire chatting. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. At 10 or 11 at night, and uh, one of the guy's dogs actually alerted us to the presence of one of the creatures, and we, we shined our lights and... Here's this thing, you know, towering above the vehicles with eye, pretty bright eye shine, and um, we took off trying to chase it. I don't know what we thought we were going to do. Of course, we weren't going to catch it, but, um, you know, that's what drew it in. We were out there basically ignoring what was going on, had our fire, and, you know, whatever noises we were making out there uh, apparently attracted it. Well, I don't know if, I don't know if you remember, but there was, there was a bunch of, when I say a bunch, there's probably four or five kids our teenagers that were camping out and um, I'm sure you've probably seen the video or maybe forced to seen it too of the white Bigfoot that, you know, they had the campfire going and the white, white Bigfoot, they get a video of this white Bigfoot looking at them. And, and it, it stood there for a long time and they didn't even notice it till it moved. Right. Yeah. So this, I, this happens pretty often actually. Yeah. In fact, yeah, I my, think that was up in Utah somewhere. Yeah, and I have a friend. It's, oh, man, ahead, it's sorry. a good, it's a good video. I mean, you, you can clearly see the face because they freeze. You know, there's portions of the film where they just freeze where he's looking through the brush at them, and the face is clear, and um, that's that's a pretty amazing video. Yeah, we were down in Las Cruces, New Mexico, um, year before last, and um, I have a friend who's he's now a chief of police in texas but he was living at that area at the time and uh you know we got together since i was down there and he lived there um and he was telling me that the week before we got there that a friend of his who was in the local police department called him and said that uh, a group of i can't remember if they were teenagers or in their 20s or young people they were out in the desert in fact it was out by one of the uh, uh known hiding places of billy the kid of all things and they were out there, you know, having a couple beers and kind of partying. And one of these things come up on there and started throwing rocks at the group, dispersed the group. So they went and reported it to the police. And we went out and checked. And sure enough, we found plenty of sign out there. And uh, it was just interesting of all places, you know, you would never expect. But this, again, we hear this time and time again where, you know, people are out. they got a fire going. They're, they're doing their thing. And then these things will approach those positions. Well, primates by nature are curious. I mean, just like people. I mean, they're they're the the nosy neighbor, you know, that always watches you from afar. And uh, you know, primates are primates. They just they do that. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. It's a little unnerving, I suppose, but. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh. Well, well what do you guys... I told. Oh, go ahead, Chuck. I told Forrest I was going to tell a little story, if you don't mind. And uh, right ahead. It was uh, uh, it's kind of a crazy deal. This happened about two years ago, and uh, I was just getting off work. And uh, I had this buddy of mine in Kansas that called me, and he's into Bigfoot and everything. And he said, hey, I just I got something to tell you that you might find interesting, and you might want to go and, and, and investigate it. And uh, he said, I had this girl call me. Uh, she knows what I do and everything. And she told me that her mom had just called her and told her that almost to the Kansas border, I think it was somewhere around Ponca City area, which is actually kind of north east of me uh, on a major highway. She said at one of the mile markers that she had passed, 
she saw a dead chimpanzee laying on the side of the road. Really? And I, uh, he, he told me about it and told me the mile marker. And uh, he said, you know, and I know that there's no chimpanzees out there. Um, he said, you might want to go check that out. And uh, it was about an hour and a half drive for me to get there. And, of course, I was I think I was doing 80 on the interstate trying to get there as soon as I could. And I finally got to the mile marker and uh, there was there was nothing there on the where the, the mile marker was, except I saw tracks, vehicle tracks uh, on the side of the road where this mile marker was. And I thought, well, that's that's kind of odd. That's kind of strange. And uh, I passed, I passed the mile marker and went down a little bit further. I thought, well, maybe she she got the mile marker wrong. And uh, I went both directions, backtracking and looking at different mile markers. But that was the only mile marker that I thought was, you know, that something could have been there. Well, strangely enough, there was a there was a loves country store it's kind of like a convenience store on the side of the road and uh i went i decided i was going to stop by there by this time it was dark getting late and i decided to go in there and and uh get me something to drink on the way home and my son was with me so i walked in there to get us something to drink and uh when i walked in there there were three tribal police in in the store and there was a cop, a police officer from Kansas that was in there. And I thought, well, that's that's pretty strange. And um, so I didn't I didn't bother the the Kansas policeman or he was state police is what he was. I didn't bother him. I just I didn't talk to him or nothing. I just noticed that he was there and I saw his badge and saw where he was from. But after he walked out of the store, I went up to the two, uh, the three tribal police, and I asked them. I said, "Hey, I, uh, I handed them my business card, which is shows that I'm a, I research Bigfoot and all that kind of stuff. And I, I gave all three of them my card, and I said, I just, I got to ask you guys a question. I, you, you're probably going to think it's a pretty odd question. I said, but I just got a report here about an hour and a half ago that." a lady was driving by this mile marker out here and she said that she saw a dead chimpanzee laying on the side of the road. I said, you guys know anything about that? Of course their response was never heard anything like that, Mm -hmm. but they did tell me, you know, they were from, there's a tribe there and they did tell me that they wanted to keep my card. And, uh, they told me that, yeah, we hear stuff like, sightings and stuff all the time i said well if you guys hear sightings or anything like that you know give me a shout call me talk to me and they agreed that they would hadn't heard nothing from them totally and, we're uh, not in kansas anymore yeah <laughs> sorry I, I couldn't <laughs> <Yeah>. resist that <laughs> but the what was really strange to me was a state trooper from kansas was there uh, along with three tribal police and and plus the the pickup tracks on the side of the side of the road where this mile marker was and the first thing that came to my mind was they they packed this thing up and stuck it in a truck and took off with it oh yeah most likely so what go ahead. <laughs> well no i was just gonna say and i don't know if y'all remember me telling you this it's been it's been a year or so ago uh, but um there was a a report and it came over the news here that somebody had seen a chimpanzee sitting on the side of the road. It was somebody had called in a report early in the morning, going to work, had seen a chimpanzee sitting on the side of the road, right out here. So, you know, I would suppose um, a juvenile, especially a young one, wouldn't look much different than a chimp. I I, I would suspect that they probably don't. They probably look like a a, a chimp. They'd be about the same size in a, as an adult chimp. Right. Actually. Right. Well, Will, I don't know. I, I, I think I've probably sent you the photos of uh, the juvenile that I captured up at um, one of the uh, casinos and got three pictures of it. And it was in a, a bunch of 
real heavy leavy type it almost looked like kudzu mm-hmm. um but i took three pictures of it and and that thing that thing looked like a like a small chimp you know i've interviewed a number of people that have seen juveniles and uh a couple of in, in particular one was here in northern california in fact it was kind of an amusing story because the guy watched these two um, juveniles and and one of them smacked the other one in the head with a stick it was like you know the typical brother uh kind of behavior but uh <laughs> you know they they resembled chimps to him and then there was another one who uh was driving through an area clear-cut area and saw this young juvenile sitting on a stump and he said look just like a, a chimp yeah i i i don't deny that at all that's kind of what this one looked like well the thing about it is is you always hear people when they report juvenile uh, or even infants uh having seen them that they're always almost always black or darker colored than the uh, adults and yes. uh-huh. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, so, almost always black. Yeah. Well, well, the that juvenile was black, and and the thing about it was is I actually went and talked to an elder there at the tribal complex, and he told me he said, "Yeah, there's there's the black one," and he said, "It's a it's a young one," and he said, "But he he follows around this this great big one that's brown," and um, and the person that was with me, she actually saw the brown one um, after we got hit by, or she got hit by infrasound. Um, we went, she told me, she said, we got to leave. And I said, well, what's the matter with you? And she said, I'm, I'm sick. I feel like I'm fixing to throw up. We got to turn back. And, uh, but anyway, the, the tribal leader said that this juvenile, this little one, uh, follows the brown one around a lot. So, must be a connection there yeah you know the the thing about it is too that's kind of peculiar and i think you know this is something i always say and y'all heard me say it before that i think bigfoot's an enigma it's kind of like uh you know uh the olfactory uh system and other primates is not not something that they readily use but you do see it used in uh bigfoot on the same token when you have uh primates infants uh, like with chimpanzees. Now, the skin on a chimpanzee when they're born is always uh, uh, pale. It's, it's, it's white. And uh, then uh, they progressively get darker the older they get. But their, their hair color stays the same. Same thing with gorillas. Now, the only thing you do, uh, and orangutans is the same thing. They're born they're that uh, cinnamon color, and they stay a cinnamon color. And this is something with primates. As groups, they traditionally uh will uh remain uh i mean they're the only thing that i've ever seen different with uh, the and some of the the monkeys their infants will be born a different color but they always progressively go into the you know um uh, uh they have a standard color i guess is what i'm trying to say for the that particular species of monkey mm-hmm. and uh and now, like with your macaques, where you have these areas where you have long tails and pigtails uh, that come in to, uh, you know, together in groups. And there will be, they, they can crossbreed. And, um, and the, the pigtails are usually a more golden color and they've got a, short, a shorter tail. And, uh, and it stands straight up just like a, a, a pigtail, which is where they get their name. And then the long tails have the long tails but they're not prehensile. They don't use them to swing in the trees or anything like the New World monkeys do. Uh, but those are the only times you see where the, the infants are usually born darker and then they change, uh, uh, you know, colors to uh, look more like the adults. The long tails are born black and then they go to that mousy color. They lose their hair and then they go to a mousy color. Well, that is the thing. What I'm, I guess what I'm getting at is with the uh, Bigfoot, you do see where almost all the babies are black Mm -hmm. and it would be uh, what my curiosity would be. Do they turn around? And now we know that there are black Bigfoot because the one that I saw was either was black or it was a very dark brown, but they had the thing with Bigfoot. There is no consistency within the species. It looks like as far as for color. 
Well, and, you know, like I said, with the, the adults of other monkeys, they, they have a standard color. Even though they may have been born a different color, they always go to a standard color and a color pattern within that species. I don't see that within, uh, you know, Bigfoot. Well, here's you can a thought. have a variety of colors. Yeah, here's a thought. A couple of different things actually could be. Um, the Sasquatch is most likely a much older species. You know, maybe the standardized color among different primates is a more recent development, you know, in, in their evolution. Maybe prior to that, and if, if these guys are a much older type of primate, uh, and we don't know about, you know, ancient primates. Just, you know, you can't well, tell and I, bones. I, You know what? I, I would uh, definitely tend to agree with you there because, you know, uh, they're pushing back the history of mankind and right. the history of anthropology all the time because uh <clears throat> the you know it used to be that uh, the uh, homo sapiens sapien didn't show up till like about uh, 50,000 years ago mm-hmm. well now they pushed that back to like 500,000 years ago and i'm like okay you know what things are changing all the time because we're discovering new things you can't it cannot be set you know, in black and white, because right. it's going to change. So I'm and wondering. we've also we've also learned that uh, you know we had you know bipedalism <laughs> in apes existed a long Way time back. ago, as early as uh, seven to nine million years ago. So and I'm I wondering. mean, they were expressing bipedal bipedalism. Right. So I wonder. why would somebody find it so strange that we now have a gigantic? Uh, ape out there running around on two feet it's been around for a long time so i'm wondering on you know on the coloration thing you know in terms of like deer for example you know the fawns are spotted they're there to blend in against predators Mm -hmm. you know what if that color change in primates was something that was standard way back you know before maybe whatever whatever the change in evolution caused them to be kind of a standard color uh, that must have been a survival adaptation of some kind. So before that, and it would make sense, you know, for the infant and the young to be black because they would blend in and hide and easier to hide against predators, you know, especially if the yeah, adults they, were out doing yeah, they other could things. Yeah, they them in shadowy places, yeah, and exactly. then uh, they wouldn't be seen as well. Yeah. And then, but and then plus even, you, oh, go ahead, I'm sorry, Chuck. Plus you, they didn't have lights way back then. Right. I mean, all they had was candle lights, so the black would help them camouflage with with the night exactly and then the adults even today you know the the majority of them are kind of a cinnamon brown color and if you think about it and if they're in a timbered environment they blend right in with the trees because of their posture and the coloration Mm -hmm. again it's it's one of those not just a, a camouflage but you know for protection it may not be for protection it might be more for a predatory advantage at that point if you're blending with trees you know, the prey animals wouldn't see you as easily. That makes sense. Just a thought anyway. Oh, yeah. Well, Miss Forrest, I got a question for you. Uh, since we're talking oh. about colors and stuff, um, and, you know, there's there's been white Bigfoot spotted numerous times. I've seen a gray one myself. And, and my question is... Um, is there gorillas or chimpanzees that will turn white? I know you got silverback gorillas, but they're not, they're really not the same as, as a white Bigfoot, but has there no, been they... any, any kind of coloration white wise with, with primates? I have never seen white show up except, uh, in cases of, uh, al- albinism. Okay. I'll be honest with you. And I don't even know why, um, the color um, white would even occur because that would be a definite disadvantage. But, I mean, you know what? We see white in deer all the time, too. And, I mean, we see, Occasionally, we, see sure. it, we even see it more down here now since they brought the uh, these, um, oh, what are the spotted deer called? Atlas deer, excuse me. The atlas deer in and these game ranches, they escape from the game ranches. I mean, I had one that was actually coming up in my barn. I don't know what happened to her, but um, she was hanging out, and uh, I was feeding her in my barn for a long time. And um, they have brought those deer in, and they've crossbred with our white-tailed deer. And we're now getting these pieball deer that are spotted, like, you know, 
uh, you know, brown and white, and then some of them are solid white, and uh, and they're blue eyed, but they're not. They're not. They don't have albinism. They're just white. And even so even it's white buffalo. Be some kind of a recessive <clears throat> gene throwing back to something somewhere. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, nature's experimented with a lot of things over time. So, yeah, you're right. It could be it could be a throwback gene that just pops in occasionally. We don't get large numbers of sightings with white or gray sasquatches, but. And, and the second time I had a sighting, it was of a of a big gray one. It wasn't light gray. It was, but it wasn't dark gray either. It was kind of, oh geez, I don't even know what uh, what do we get, compare it to. Kind of in between. Kind of in between, yeah, yeah. Well, well, not I guess uh, gunmetal gray, but that would be more of a dark gray. It than, was lighter uh, than that. Yeah. Yeah, lighter it, than that. It would, I guess, almost battleship gray. Not quite like that, but I would say a little dirtier version looking. Yeah. But it was, uh-huh. and but that creature had been seen in the area for at least twenty years that I know of of the same coloration. So it wasn't age. Uh-huh. No, it wasn't age. But you do hear too, like you know, your your silverbacks uh, and and gorillas, and now the the silver. It, it's it's just the back that gets silver. Right. And and that com- that comes with age. But uh, you do ha- hear instances where people will say that they saw a uh, Bigfoot exhibiting a silver back. Sometimes, yes. Yeah. So, you know, I, <laughs> I don't know what the answer is. It's, uh, well, you know, we have until we these, can do all, their DNA. <laughs> right. With all these different variants we have, too, among them, there's, I suppose there's going to be some coloration difference there also. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So we were talking, when we decided to do this kind of a segment, we were talking about some of the kind of the behind-the-scenes stuff. Is there any of that kind of stuff you guys want to talk about? Or Yeah, I want to hear about Ape Canyon. <laughs> you know, Tom and I were talking about that earlier. And we both had... We I bo- wonder where I got that from. <laughs> we, we, both, we both had Google Earth up, and we were looking at it, because I was telling him. You know, he was asking me, and, and you know, that area's changed so much since the mountain blew back in 1980. Um, I was showing him the road. There's well, he, we were talking about first. There's uh, when you get off I five and you head that direction. To and today they have they have signs up for the observatory and all that. But back in you know when we were eighteen in nineteen seventy six, um, you know we were heading up there because you know story goes that uh, after I met Green and Hinden back in seventy five, they went back to Canada and and I got a phone call one day. Uh, from a college student in Portland, Oregon. And he was doing a paper about all things Bigfoot. And apparently he wanted to talk to a, a few witnesses who had seen the creatures and you know for his paper. So John Green had given him my number and he called me. And I told him what I'd seen. And afterwards we, we chatted a little bit. And he says, have you ever been to Ape Canyon to where the miners were attacked? And by this time I'd read Green's book so I knew the story. And I said, no, I, I used to, we've hunted down there a few times on the western side of the mountain with my dad and uncle, but I've never been to that area, and that, which is on the east side of Mount St. Helens. So he told me how to get there. And I talked to my buddies at school, and six of us decided we were going to go. And I, I tell yeah, you what. Yeah, this is when Milo went with you, right? Oh, oh yes. <laughs> yeah, there, there were six of us. And and my buddy Scott, he was driving his, uh, his dad's brand spanking new vw van and uh i mean it was you know we were a bunch of clowns uh and it was just you know one thing after the other we were doing stuff to each other messing around so uh we were driving down and i wrote about this in my second book in in search of the unknown i had to leave out some of the juicy stuff though because it was kind of uh um publicly unacceptable stuff (laughs) but you know it was junk the crap teenagers do to each other but so we were heading down i-5 to start the trip off and and i was in the front passenger seat navigating my friend scott was driving and and uh, milo and, and another guy were in the middle and two of our other buddies were in the very back and, and paul had this stuff from some family member who was in the korean war and it was you know sea rations of the food you know in these cans and he opened one up and he taps me on the shoulder and he says, do you think I should eat this? And I turn around and here's this this can, I guess it was Beanie Weenies. 
and I swear <laughs> it looked like it was alive and coming. It was coming out of the can on its own. And I said, I think you need to get rid of that before it attacks one of us. <laughs> so, so we were, like I said, we're cruising down I-5. And Paul opens up the side window, and he's getting ready to chuck this out on the freeway. And Scott looks up in the mirror, and he says, there's a state trooper behind us. And we're all like, no. And all these arms reach out and grab Paul and hold him steady. And we're like, God, what are you thinking? You know, and we, we get to a little town in southern Washington called Castle Rock. And it's not much of a town. It had a Safeway, and, and we, you know, we'd pooled all of our money, and, you know, three guys went with a shopping cart one way, and three went with another shopping cart the other way, and everybody just grabbed whatever they felt like for food, and most of it was canned food and crap like that, with no thought whatsoever about how we're going to carry this stuff anywhere. <laughs> so, we got Tom and I talking. Oh, it was just craziness. So, there's, when you drive up um i think it's the kalama highway i think that's what it's called like i can't remember it's been a long time since i was there but we you drive up this highway heading towards spirit lake and back in those days <clears throat> there was a ranger station right next to spirit lake so there's there was one place along the highway to stop and get gas so we decided to stop there and it was i think at that time it was either an old house or some kind of a very old building and it was just they had a couple of gas pumps out front and, and you could buy some things inside, a little store there. So without us knowing it, Scott drove off and left the gas cap there. And uh, we, we drove up to Spirit Lake. We got there. It was, it was kind of late. It was after dark. And across the street, now remember, this time here it was November. There was absolutely nobody up there. The ranger station was closed. There were no cars. There were no people anywhere. So there was this big parking lot across the street and it had to be five acres in size i suppose they used to get a lot of traffic there in the summertime so we parked on the far side of it and and it was really windy up there so we were going to make set a camp up and couldn't set the tent up couldn't even get a fire going up so windy so we decided to go for a hike it was real bright moonlight you could see really well and pumice is light colored so you could see well and uh, we discovered along this hike up this slope that pumice was slippery so we got the bright idea to sit on our butts and slide down the hill. And we kept we kept climbing back up to this one spot, and we'd slide down maybe, you know, 200 feet down this slope. And then we decided it was getting kind of cold, and we figured out why it was getting cold was because pumice is glass, and it was eating the pants out of our jeans. <laughs> so, so we decided... <laughs> we, we decided to hike back to the van and change our clothes. That was about a 15, 20 minute hike back to where the van was. We get back there, there's no car keys. Scott had lost the car keys somewhere. Now, you got to remember the oh pumice was about knee deep. So, this stuff, these things, I'm thinking, oh my God. And the wallet, his wallet was gone too. So, all of our money's gone. <laughs> and we're thinking, oh crap, you know, this stuff could be as deep as three feet down. We have no idea. So, we, we had to go back and look. And we started searching the area, and, and we found a line of Sasquatch tracks. They would have been about 18 inches long, and they were going up this slope. You could see hundreds of them going, you know, as far as you could see, going up this ridge. And we took some pictures. Uh, Scott or whoever had the camera didn't lose that. And lo and behold, we're at this place where we were sitting down and, and starting our sliding. Here was the wallet with the keys sitting on top of it. Now, Scott had this stuff in his pocket. And to this wow. day, we're thinking, how the hell did this wallet get set here with the keys on top of it? It was mm. just, and we're not saying the Sasquatch did it, but, you know, one of, them, one of them had been there watching us, apparently goofing around for all that time. And, and we don't know if it found the wallet and put them there in the one place we kept coming back to or not. It was just, to, the rest, to this day, we have no idea. So the oh, next yeah. day, yeah, the next day we decided to... Uh, <laughs> There was a trailhead. You drove. You kept driving past uh, the ranger station on this road, and there was a. Uh, uh, the road ended at the trailhead. It was kind of a, like a cul-de-sac the way it was set up, and you had to hike up to what's now Windy Ridge Observatory. It was Windy Pass, and and I don't know exactly how far up it was, but it was it was a grueling hike because, like I said, you're oftentimes you were knee deep in pumice trying to get up this trail. And, uh, and at the top, it was just a formation of rocks and it was basically just a little wider than it took to be able to walk through this. And it was, you know, much higher than we were tall. Uh, 
So we get up there and uh, myself and my friend Brian were in the best shape physically. So we, we were ahead of everybody else and we thought, well, we'll get up to Windy Pass and we'll sit inside this, um, this passage of rocks and we'll just kind of hang out and catch our breath and wait for the other guys to catch up. Well, a few minutes later, here comes Milo. Now, if you know whom Animal and Muppets was, that's kind of like, that's kind of Milo. You know, and I've had, I've, I've told people, you've never met Milo before. I said, you know, if you know Animal on the Muppets, that's Milo. And after they met him, they're like, oh yeah, I see it. That's him. <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> so Milo come running up there and he's, he's mad as hell at something. And we couldn't understand a thing he was saying. It was all gibberish. And we're like, you know, my friend Brian, he says, Milo, you know, slow down, speak English. <laughs> what are you saying? <laughs> and he, he goes, and, and Paul forever, every time we would go someplace and do anything, we'd have our packs on, we'd be out, you know, hiking or doing whatever. And he would always, always, something would fall off his pack. And he'd say, I got to stop, I dropped my gear. And we're like, oh, crap. So Milo's like, no, 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 drop my gear. And we're like, well. Paul dropped something. <laughs> yeah, dumb so-and-so dropped stuff. Did you tell him to pick it up? And it looked like somebody slapped him across the face when he said that. And he holds a finger up and he says, I'll be right back. And he runs off. Brian looks at me and he goes, dumbass. <laughs> so, so I swear, less than 10 minutes later, here he comes again, just as mad as he was the first time. And we're like, you know, slow down. What happened? He says, oh, dumb so-and-so stood there and watched his pack roll down the hill and all the stuff came out of it. And we're like, oh, God. <laughs> so I said, look, you know, we got to come back and get the food. We knew we were going to have to make a second trip. We'll pick his stuff up on the way back. So all the guys, we got up to where um, where this college student told me that the uh, the cabin where Fred Beck and his, his buddies were the night they were attacked in 1924. And it was easy to find the spot. It was at the head of Ape Canyon where Fred Beck talked about the location. And the students had found the spot. And actually, we knew it was the spot because they had made some uh, kind of makeshift uh, benches and things like that, you know, tying logs to trees and things. So three of the guys stayed there. And uh, me and Brian and Milo, we hiked back to the van. It was probably, oh, I don't know, six, seven miles one way. We hiked back. We didn't even really look at his stuff on the way down the trail. We just wanted to get there before dark, get the stuff, and hike back up with us. So we're packing this, this god-awful uh, canvas cabin tent and all this canned food, what we could get in our packs up this freaking mountain. We hmm. get up to where the, the stuff was dropped, and we decided this was a place to stop, take a break. So Milo, he says, come over here and look at what dummy had in his pack. <laughs> he had three things in his pack long underwear plastic ship models and baseball cards that's all that was in his pack <laughs> i just you know i i was kind of i was the uh the chosen leader of the group you know and i just like oh god <laughs> i said well grab a little bit of his underwear the rest of this crap can stay here forever <laughs> we're not picking it up and and we didn't realize that paul had other things on him that you know until the end of this trip so we we got back to the camp and and it was just you know like some teenage boys we just did crazy stuff and we did a lot of hiking around there we didn't really see or hear anything else up there of course it was pretty windy at night so you wouldn't have heard much anyway unless there was something screaming close by but um it snowed the last morning we were there pretty heavy and i told the guys i said i think we better we better pack up fairly quick and get out of here while we can get out of this um we had met a group of hunters up there on horseback on the way in and we found out later after the trip that those people had actually died up there. Oops, phone's ringing. Uh, anyway, we, um, let me see if it's going to stop ringing here. Oh, it did. Okay. Um, so three of us decided to go out and get some more fire, get the fire stoked up. Now we had been burning a few days, so we had a pretty good bed of coals going. And, um, with three of us come walking back in about the same time with armloads of wood. Well, here's, or f let me see, four of us did. So it was just Paul and Milo were by the fire. Milo was squatted down, blowing on the coals. Paul was standing above him with gunpowder pouring it on, black powder pouring it on the coals. 
we all oh stopped. God. We stopped and looked at each other. We started backing up. We nobody said anything, <laughs> and it went whoosh. And then we're like, we're just standing there, stunned, thinking, you know, did these two just kill themselves or what? <laughs> so oh when gosh. when the ash cloud cleared, it was kind of a mini, you know, it was kind of a <laughs> kind of a mini Mount St. Helens eruption there. Um, they're in the same position. Paul's coughing a lung out. Milo's sitting there with this look on his face. You know, he was just just in shock. And when we realized the two of them were okay, we all fell on the ground laughing. It was so funny. <laughs> so we packed up. We hiked out of there, and and then we get back there. And and Scott, we we made these things. We were crazy when we were teenagers. Me and Milo were in the metal shop, and and the teacher we had was retiring that year, so he didn't care about what anybody was doing. So we were in the back, and they had this this automatic saw. So we had this steel round stock that was solid and we had wrist rockets so we were cutting these chunks of this one inch steel stock into half inch chunks that we could shoot with the wrist rockets <laughs> and we oh and, and we carried this stuff well scott and milo i went to use a, a, one of the restrooms that was there and i come back and i hear these guys they're like oh god they were whining and griping and i said what did you two do and i turned my back for 30 seconds and you guys are getting in trouble well, they'd shot one of these things straight up in the air. It came straight back down, landed right in the middle of the windshield of the brand new van. And, and it looked like a target where there were these three big circular rings that were cracked. <laughs> so I, I sent the pictures. Are you still actually friends now? Oh, yeah, we're still, we're still buddies. <laughs> Don't know these guys for 50 years. <laughs> wow. So we, I sent the pictures to Green, and, and John, John Green said about the footprints was, what was that with these pictures taken with a flash? I'm like, what the hell? Well, yeah, it's the middle of the night. What do you think we're taking a picture with? You know, he never said squat about that. I, I was really disillusioned with John Green after a while. Uh, I didn't think a whole lot of it then, but it was later. Um, God, 1980, when I, after, when I was in the Army and I, I'd come back from being stationed in Europe, I was stationed at Fort Lewis. And, and, um, I was up, uh, for a call from a family friend who, who told us or told me about the, the couple of elk that were torn apart up there. So I went up there uh, with my 357 and camera to, to take a look around and I found a bunch of tracks and the blood and everything and, and where these things had crashed through the trees. It was a hell of a sight actually. And, uh, I took some pictures of the footprints were pretty good tracks and sent them to green. And, of course, you know, in those days, we just had print film and uh, got them developed. I sent the, the, the actual photographs to Green. And he writes back and he says, yeah, those are pretty good tracks. That's all he said. And I just, oh I just kind of got disgusted <laughs> with John Green at that point because he just didn't seem to really care. And I went to his house after, you know, I told you guys about going to the Clark Ranch. And he went out there, took us out there after the event we had. And uh, no sooner did we got out of his van when these things started screaming. And he stood around a little bit. Then he says, well, i got to get back to British Columbia. And I was at his house probably, oh, geez, I don't know if it was 20 years later. And that long later, he kept he said, you know, I'm still kicking myself for not taking a recorder. Well, we told you what was going on. Hmm. It's just amazing some of the things, you know, the... The, you know, the background stories and some of these things that went on with these people that, you know, everybody holds in great esteem. And, and I do too, but, you know, I, I got a little closer insight to some of these people than most people do. And and they really weren't um, as up to the task as most people might think. Well, do you feel like he really did that much of an in-depth research? No, not really. I mean, Green was a, uh, he was a journalist and... And sort of approach the topic from that perspective, and I can't blame him. That was his forte. Uh, well, yeah. To Hinden, well, you was... know. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. You know, well, John Green was. Uh, he was probably one of my biggest influences when he wrote the book mm -hmm. uh, "The Apes Among Us." I mean, I, I read that book and read that book and read that book, and you know, I. I just had a lot of respect for him back then, but then you're putting a whole different light on the subject. <laughs> you know, I, I'll say that, but I, I have a lot of respect for Green, too. I really do. 
Um, because especially when, you know, I met the two of them, him and DeHanden, uh, they made a huge impact on me because I just read his books and then to actually meet these guys was, was a big thing to a 17 year old kid. Um, sure. you know, but as I, as I went along and I, and I always, I always think about stuff and always trying to work different ideas and angles with things, trying to figure stuff out and, uh, you know, when I would question the two of them, and of course, you know, they weren't together. That was the only t- time I ever was around the two of them when they were in the same location. And even then, at their camp, they really didn't associate with each other at all. Really? The only time I saw Renee and Green actually in the same room was Green had his little travel trailer there. And when Renee took me over to meet him, he he brought me into the travel trailer, introduced me, then he left. But other than that, the two of them did not talk to each other. Was there some kind of animosity between the two of them? Oh, yeah. And and I learned this um, over the years afterwards. Uh, when you saw John Green's books, and to this day, when you look at Green's books, most of the pictures are black and white. And they're black and white for a reason. It wasn't that they couldn't do color. Uh, and Green told me this himself. And, and I, we're the little place. You'll see the book. Uh, it says Cheam Publishing. Well, there's a highway that goes along the Fraser River in British Columbia out towards Harrison Hot Springs, where Green lived. Uh, and there's a bend in the road, and there's one building on it. That was Cheam Publishing. <laughs> it was Green's Green's own creation. Oh, it's his own publishing company. Right. right. I know oh. exactly. I know exactly where that is. I've been up and down that road. Oh, you, you know the spot then, yeah. Well, folks, we had a little trouble with recording. It stopped on its own, so. Uh, Sorry to leave it hanging there, but we're going to resume the conversation with episode two next week, and uh, we'll try to add some of that commentary. But uh, thanks for listening, folks. We appreciate it, and hope you enjoy this new piece we're doing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Creek Devil. If you or anyone you know has had an encounter with these creatures please contact us at williamjevning at yahoo.com. That's William, J-E-V-N-I-N-G, at yahoo.com. All communication is confidential. Join us for another program next week. And until then, keep your eyes open out there.